Hey, I'm Roman Chupiaka, and today I'm talking to Richard Eisenberg. Richard, welcome to Compositional. Hi, thanks for having me. We should let people know that you were the one who came up with the name Compositional. Yes, that's. I guess I. I guess I did. That was. Um, I, I'm normally poor with names, but somehow I hit a little inspiration there. I guess. Well done there. So you've been a Haskell and GHC contributor for for a long time, and for a long time, your main, I think, interest has been um, dependent Haskell and uh, playing with dependent types. You you wrote the the singletons uh, library. So have your interests changed over time, and and what are you doing these days uh, in the context of GHC? Yeah, thanks for asking. So let's see. Um. My interests, have they changed? No, I don't think, I wouldn't describe it as change. I would describe it as broadened. Um, dependent types are still very important to me. And in some sense, I'm, every day I'm, I'm hoping to find a little space in that day to get back and, and continue to work on dependent types. I still think that they will be in the future. And, and uh, I'm excited to see all of what's been happening in the GHC proposals land um, about developing the interface for dependent types. Um, what I've been working on recently, uh, the, my latest thing, which is not quite ready to, to, to show off yet, is I'm thinking about uh, existentials and type inference for existentials. So we see in, in Haskell how for all works really well. We can have universal polymorphism. Everything works great. Uh, when we do existentials, on the other hand, um, uh, that's kind of painful. We have to define data types and we have to manually unpack these data types and manually pack the data types. And I don't think any of that's really necessary. Um, and so that's that's a current project that I'm working on. Um, but then se somewhat separate from all of that, there's been a lot of other changes recently in, in GHC. Um, so th there are some big ones with GHC 9.0. So we have um, this new subsumption relation in, in GHC 9.0 uh, that I could talk about a little bit. Um, that's uh, it's it's a simplification in the code, but I think it also makes the language a little bit more predictable. So that's a good thing. Um, there's some better pattern match checking that we have in GHC 9.0. Uh, so that's fun stuff. Day-to-day um, uh, -day work for me right now, I've found ways of eliminating thousands of lines of code from the constraint solver that I'm working on. Um, and it's not, I haven't quite merged yet, but we're very close. It's, it's really going well. So uh, that's a real improvement, right? To just delete thousands of lines of code and have no degradation. That's pretty cool. Um, so there's lots of fun things going on. Uh, so what shall we talk about today? So, so maybe I'll, I'll explain for everyone um, a little bit about this, this change in subsumption. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, perhaps some of you are aware that there are some programs that were accepted before GHC 9.0 that are no longer accepted. Um, this is actually intentional. It's um, it's an attempt, essentially, to simplify Haskell a little bit. Um, so, so how to explain this? Um, I want to I want to go back and and think about subtypes. So, the idea of a subtype in uh, in programming languages is when you have two types. Uh, we could say A is a subtype of B. If whenever we expect something of type B, something of type A would also work. Um, so a, a nice, easy, sort of familiar way of thinking about subtyping is in uh, object-oriented programming. Um, and so using sort of a, a uh, you know, I actually used to be a high school teacher, so I'll go back to a high school style example. Um, and, and imagine we have a, a pet class, and we might have dog and cat, our subtypes of pet. 
right? Any, any code that's expecting a pet could work with a dog or a cat because dogs and cats are pets. Um, and uh, so with that idea of a subtype relationship, then we can, we can go a little bit further and talk about what's called covariance and contravariance. And if we have some kind of container type, right, we can imagine how that container type interacts with the subtype relationship. So if all you could ever do from your container is read from your container, then we can say that the container is covariant, right? So let's, I'll, I'll, I'll call it a read-only list, right? If I have a read-only list of pets, um, actually, if I have that, if I'm expecting a read-only list of pets, a read-only list of cats would be fine. Every time I read, I'm just going to get a cat out. But I have, as I've already said, every time I want a pet, I can use a cat. So my code that's expecting pets will get cats instead, and that's fine because it's read-only. So we say here that a read-only list would be covariant, right? And that's because if I'm expecting a read-only list of pets, a read-only list of cats would work just fine. So now let's think about write-only lists. So in a write-only list, I'm only ever going to be able to put elements in. I can't ever get elements out. And, and let's say I'm expecting a write-only list of pets. So in my, write, in my function that's expecting a write-only list, maybe I add some cats, maybe I add some dogs. If we imagine getting a write-only list of cats, that's not going to work for me anymore. Even though the read-only list of cats worked when I was expecting a read-only list of pets, a write-only list of cats is not going to work if I want a write-only list of pets, because I might write a variety of different pets to it. And so we actually get the opposite relationship with write-only lists or, or arbitrary collections, um, in that if I instead, if I want a write-only list of cats, I'm only going to be sending cats to that list. If, the func if my function gets a write-only list of, of pets, on the other hand, that's just fine. I can write only cats to that list, but my write-only list of pets can accept that. And so what happens here is that even though I'm expecting only a list of cats, actually a list of pets is good. So a write-only list of pets is a subtype of a write-only list of cats, even though cat is a subtype of pet. So that's why we have contravariance, because the variance of this write-only list is backwards from the way that, that the element type varies. Okay, so now let's put these concepts together. If we think of a function, in some sense a function is, is just like a collection. It, 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 if we have a function from type A to type B, it's something that accepts type A. So we could say that it's sort of a write-only thing that contains type A. And it outputs type B, so it, we can read out things of type B from this function that goes from A to B. Or maybe it's, it's a pipe where one end is write-only, so we can write some A to it, and on the output of the pipe we can read a B from it. Exactly, exactly. We write an A into one side, we read a B out of the other. And so a function we can see is covariant in its result, but contravariant in its argument. Um, and these ideas, this is, this is true of any system that has subtyping. Okay, so, so we've been using this pet and cat example, and that's very uh, sort of object-oriented nature. Let's talk a little bit about Haskell. So Haskell doesn't have this kind of object-oriented uh, subtyping. Its subtyping has to do more with polytypes, right? So in Haskell, if I have a function of type for all A, A arrow A, Right? 
I can say that's a subtype of the function of type int arrow int. Right? So if we think about why is that the case? So let's say I, I have some other function that's, ex that's expecting um, an argument of type int arrow int. If I pass it this fully polymorphic function, that's just fine. Right? My fully polymorphic function, think id, right? Id is fully polymorphic. It's the thing of type for all a, a, r, o, a. Something that's expecting int arrow int is going to be able to work with id just fine. So we can say that for all a, a, r, o, a is a subtype of int arrow int. It's also a subtype of bool arrow bool, but it's not a subtype of int arrow bool, right? It can't, it can't work at that type. It's, it's also interesting to talk about, like, sometimes we even exploit the, this feature, and I think you in particular. So when, when we want to have subtyping in, uh, in Haskell, but we don't have it, we can sometimes emulate it through polymorphic types. So what was it, like some, some kind of levity polymorphism or something where you used this trick? Oh, so yes, that's, that's an interesting connection. Um, levity polymorphism does connect to this in that before GHC 8.0, uh, there was this, no one ever really saw it, and we tried to hide it under the rug, but there was this subkinding relationship. Um, uh, Hasklers from, from, from that time might every now and then have seen sort of question marks appear in, uh, in kinds. I think the question mark was our notation for open kind, which could either be lifted or unlifted. And so there was this subtype relationship where a lifted type was a subtype of this, what was called an open kind, and an unlifted type, or the unlifted kind was also a subtype of open kind. And when we got to have um, uh, kind level equalities, that interferes really badly with subtyping. Um, and so we needed to get rid of that and replace subtyping with polymorphism. So now we quantify uh, over all different kinds of, of types, um, and we, we use this, um, this type construct, which I can get into more detail if we want to, um, uh, to model levity polymorphism without using subtyping. We sort of have replaced subtyping with polymorphism. Right, because the, the kinds was uh, one place where we actually had subtyping in Haskell. Are you saying it's not all gone from GC? So where, wherever we need to ensure that one kind can be used instead of the other one, it's all done through this polymorphism subtyping? Yes, yeah, it's all done through, through this polymorphism, right? And, and so right now, um, instead of having this, this sort of question mark kind, that's what it was. it was. It was a question mark kind, which was the super type, and then star and hash, which were the subtypes. Um, instead of having that, right now we say that the most general kind is uh, type, there's this, it's type written in all caps, um, of some polymorphic ar argument R. And so we can instantiate R to be something for lifted types, and we can instantiate R for something to, into something else to be unlifted types. What's interesting to me is that intuitively you would expect the more or less the same problems to, to pop up, right? When we replace one sort of subtyping with another, although it's encoded differently, but the fundamental problems, and it's, I think it's reasonably well known in the, in the programming language community that subtyping is a pain, especially when you combine it with like type inference and like Hindley-Milner, so subtyping should be avoided. And 
it it seems like if you encode it differently, like it would be surprising if those issues magically disappeared. That's a good, that's a really good point. I wouldn't expect them to magically disappear. And yet our experience is, is that the, that using polymorphism instead of this more sort of object oriented style of subtyping does work better. Um, and I'm trying to think why that is to, to, to give a concrete explanation of, of why. And I don't have a good answer there. Um, I do know that the challenge around these kinds, it all had to do with our notion of equality in that when you have subtyping, so so internally GHC is very concerned about what type is equal to, to what other type. And it turns out that in a language with subtyping, equality is the wrong thing to be thinking about. Everywhere we want to be thinking about equality, instead we have to be thinking about subtype relationships. And of course, the problem with subtype relationships is that they're not symmetric. And so GHC's internal notion of equality fundamentally relies on symmetry, on being able to say if A equals B, then B equals A. And so if we were to rebase all of that on subtyping, it's really unclear how we would go about doing that. Um, Given, given the sort of the structure that really relies on symmetry in an important way. When we move to this, this polymorphism-based um, way of, of, of dealing with multiple types, that issue doesn't come up, I think, because it's all taken, taken care of during type inference. So we sort of figure out at the beginning what the relationships among the types are, and then we don't have to track it anymore. We can just use this equality. Is it the fact that you never actually compare polytypes for equality, but you first need to instantiate them? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. So we're not going to compare the polytypes for equality. Instead, we just do some some type inference. So the user writes their program, and, and there we have some notion of subtyping. But once once that program is, is sort of understood, then we don't need to, to worry about it anymore, and we can do a lot more work with, with a more solid notion and symmetric notion of equality. But this actually connects in an interesting way to some new, um, a new feature that's, that didn't quite make it for GHC 9.0. This is going to be a 9.2, but there's a new implementation of, uh, it's called quick look and predicativity, um, which is, uh, it's a way of uh, still not comparing um, these, these polymorphic types, but it allows us to infer polymorphic types in more places. Um, so that can be very useful. Okay, so let's go back to subsumption. Yeah, yeah, so subsumption. So, um, okay, so we built up this idea that a function is, it can be contravariant in its input, right? We, we, I like your idea of this, of this pipe. So it, uh, there's a write-only end of the pipe and a read-only end of the pipe. So the write-only end, the argument, that can be contravariant. Um, and the output can be covariant because that's, that's essentially read-only uh, when you're, what you're reading back out of the pipe. Um, and because of this, GHC, since the beginning of its support for higher rank types, so this uh, dates back to a, um, a paper called the, the Practical Type Inference for Higher Ranked or for Arbitrary Rank Types um, uh, from 2007. And that paper describes and GHC implements this algorithm that supports both contravariance and covariance. Um, but there's a problem. And, and that is that when GHC understands your Haskell program, it translates that Haskell program into essentially a variant of System F. So, so System F, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, is 
uh, essentially an internal language. It's very explicit. You wouldn't want to program in it. Um, but every time we instantiate a type or abstract over a type, that's explicit in the language. What that means for this contravariant subsumption, I think that uh, unpacking all the details here is maybe not as instructive as other things we could talk about, but it ends up changing the semantics of your program. Um, and this relates to the fact that we need to add extra lambdas. Um, so if we imagine, let's say actually we have a, um, a function, it's a function of type int to int, but I've defined the function to be, um, to be bottom. I say f equals undefined. So even though it's a function, of course, undefined can have a function type. And if I try to call that function, or if I try to evaluate the function, my program throws an exception. Well, um, if I instead I imagine, instead of defining f equals undefined, imagine I wrote in my program fx equals undefined x. So normally we do that kind of transformation. That's called an eta expansion. And normally we can do eta expansion, and it's not going to change the behavior of the program. We normally think that it doesn't. But, but actually, internally, that does, in this very one case, in this very special case, does change the behavior of f. And that if I try to force f, my original f equals undefined, forcing f would then diverge. I'd get an exception right away. Right. So if you wrote something like f sec something else. Exactly. If I use, right, if I bind f using a bang pattern, or if I use the, the seq operator um, in Haskell, that would diverge for, for f. You'd get an exception. But if I define, let's, let me change my, my letter. If I define gx equals undefined x, then if I try to force g by binding it in a bang pattern or by using seq, well, g internally is going to be a lambda, and lambdas are values. So forcing g would be just fine. Nothing bad happens. So even though f and g look really similar, and we normally think of this eta expansion as not changing the meaning of a program. Actually, it's changed the meaning of this program. Going back to subsumption, the way that GHC understands both covariant and contravariance under the function arrow, it has to use eta expansion internally. And so that means that fairly simple Haskell programs that we could write, that you look at it and you see something where it says f equals undefined, but maybe f has this fancy type. And now if I try to force f, f would be a value, and, and forcing it would not throw an exception, even though it looks like in our code we have f equals undefined. So this is very strange. So what kind of code should we write to, to observe that? So we would have f equals undefined, and we should give f some kind of um, type to force GHC to perform this subtyping uh, or, or subsumption thingy? Yeah, so 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 again, this won't work in GHC 9.0 because we fixed it. But but before GHC 9.0, if f had a type um, like say int arrow for all a dot a, mm -hmm. where you have a for all to the right of an arrow, and then if we say f equals undefined, I'm pretty sure forcing f would then not throw an exception because internally GHC will want to move will want to move that for all to the left of the arrow and change my int arrow for all a dot a into for all a int arrow a. But that transformation internally requires eta expansion, which will sort of hide my use of undefined behind a lambda. Are there any 
more practical implications that what happens if you try to force your F? Well, the, the, the issue comes up when we're, when we're trying to force F. So, so the question is, are there practical implications? I think we haven't been thinking, when, when we were thinking about this, we, we were, um, at least in terms of, of this ADA expansion problem, it wasn't as much, to be honest, practical considerations of this sort that we were thinking about, but just the fact that GHC should not be in the business of changing the meaning of your program, right? If you, if you write a program, it, GHC shouldn't sort of change the interpretation of that program internally just to suit its, its own convenience. And that's what it's been doing for about 10 years. But no one noticed. Uh, so um, I don't know how many people noticed, no. Um, the, other, the, the, the other practical, more practical aspect, again, is this, this helps to power, I mentioned earlier, um, that this helps to power, or, or this relates to this impredicativity, which is very practical. Um, and uh, the new impredicativity feature involves inferring the existence of polymorphic types. And this is made much easier without this fancy contravariant and covariant subtyping relationship that works with, with, with function arrows. So if function arrows are neither contravariant nor covariant, we can do better inference for impredicativity. So I'll just repeat what, what you just said. So um, the function arrows are no longer covariant or contravariant. Yes, that's right. So let me give a concrete example. Uh, we talked a minute ago about this int arrow for all a dot a. In, in GHCs up to, but not including GHC 9.0, that type was considered equivalent to for all a int arrow a. Right. And, that, and that's because of this, this covariant and contravariant treatment of arrow. And so it will be equivalent in both ways. So wherever you expect one type, you can use the other one. Yes, that's right. That is no longer true. If you write that type signature, f has type int arrow for all a dot a, then if you say f equals undefined, you'll actually get an error because we would need to instantiate undefined at a, at a polytype, and we can't do that, at least not without a predicative type inference. But, but now we, we have to treat for alls as like a very explicit thing in the type. Right. So what happens? Because um, in Haskell ninety eight, you don't have for alls at all. You, you just write right. write ID column column a arrow a, and so for all is implicit there, and it's always inserted, you know, at the leftmost position right after the column column. Right. Exactly. Um, yes. And um, now, basically, starting from GHC nine, you have to consider where your for alls go that that's just part of the type that you cannot easily easily shuffle around now what can you use to convert one type to another can you use curse from from data curse or do do you have to manually you know, lambda expand those yeah so that's that's a good question so so first off just to dispel any fears um the haskell 98 types continue to work just fine there's no trouble there at all Right? Because if you any type that you write, if you don't explicitly write for alls, the for alls always get inferred up at the top. That's not changing, and we don't have to mm -hmm. worry about that. This only matters when someone has explicitly written a for all that's not at the top of a type. Um, uh, so how do you convert between these? Well, you have to use ADA expansion. Um, 
So if we want to get back and forth between for all a int arrow a and int arrow for all a dot a, um, we can by eta expanding. So if we have f and g where f has one type and g has the other, we can't say f equals g, but we can say fx equals gx. Mm -hmm. Um, but this makes the ADA expansion that GHC had previously been doing explicit. So now the user can understand, oh, well, if one of these things is undefined, that is going to end up being hidden by, behind a lambda. So we're not going to get unexpected behavior. Did you or anyone else um, do any testing? Were there any examples, let's say, in Hackage where people actually use that and like actual, like not theoretical programs broke, but some code that person actually wrote broke? Yes, yes. So uh, as part of, it's, it's toward the end of the uh, recently published paper on impredicativity on, on this quick look algorithm. Toward the end of that, there is an empirical study of how much code broke. And it was, it was non-trivial. If I, if I remember, it was maybe 50 or 60 different packages um, on Hackage that, that this breaks code in. But in all but four cases, the solution was a very straightforward ADA expansion. In two more cases, it was a not quite as straightforward ADA expansion. And then I think the last two cases, if I remember correctly, involved some template Haskell. Um, at, at one of them, actually, as it turns out, is Singleton's. Um, and, and so a little bit more cleverness had to be put in. But it, 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 it was decided that this was not too terrible a burden because the repair was really easy and fully backward compatible. Do you remember um, if there was any pattern in those breakages? So for example, uh, you know, 90% of time where we had a problem with impredicative types, that's just a matter of run ST dollar do, right? Where it's, for that reason, it's, just, it's uh, specifically hacked or, or fixed in, inside uh, GHC or hard-coded in, in GHC. So was there a similar pattern uh, which um, led to those um, subsumption invocations? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't, I don't have the answer for you off the top of my head. I, I um, Juran Hag at um, at University of Utrecht um, uh, did that work, so I don't, I, uh, I don't have an answer for you. I have not looked at that myself. Okay, but um, apart from breaking some fifty or sixty hackage packages, like, did this change achieve anything interesting in GHC? Like, were you able to simplify some code inside GHC? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. There was um, there was this network of very closely related functions um, to compute subtyping. That I don't know. We had maybe ten different versions of these functions that were all just slightly different from each other. Um, and I think it went down from 10 to four uh, functions. So it's still more than we would like because there's still a bit of a zoo, but it's it's much better than it was. It was quite a bit of deleting code. It was very nice. And so you, you mentioned this connection to impredicative types and, and this work um, on uh, quick look impredicativity. Uh, so can you talk about that connection more? Sure, sure. This this is, I think, some really exciting stuff. Um, so, um, the idea of impredicative type inference is is to be able to infer um, when a function is being applied to a polymorphic argument. So, I'm going to use some impractical examples, but they're that are simple, and so. Um, we're just going to have to trust that this is actually useful in, in, in larger settings, and, and people have been wanting this. Um, but imagine a, a, a list where I'm going to call it ids. Um, 
and it's a list of the id function, right? So, so its type is going to be list of for all a a r o a. Again, really contrived, but also nice and simple, and something that we can we can have in our heads. And so, let's say I want to pull out the first element of this list. So, so I want to think of applying the the function head to this list ids. So head is also a polymorphic function, right? But now we have a challenge in that the when I when whenever we apply head to a list, let's say I have a list of booleans over here, so we'll call that bools. So if I say head bools, then GHC has to do a little bit of work, and we have this thing of list of bool, and we have this function being applied. So I have to figure out that my head function, which takes a list of a to a. Well, now I want to instantiate head to be list of bool to bool. So I need to replace a with bool. Okay, that's an easy case. So, by the way, does that count as as an invocation of the subsumption rule, or do you treat it differently? Um, yeah, that's a good question. We we it depends on how you want to look at it. Either either way is a valid way of, of looking at it. We could say that the type of head for all a list of a to a is a subtype of the type list of bool to bool. And that could be subsumption. Or we could also say that we're instantiating the polymorphic type of head to a concrete instantiation. Both views are correct because in a language like Haskell, the subsumption relation is built on top of instantiation. Instantiation is sort of the, the primary action of, of our subsumption relation. Sort of like in an object-oriented system, subclassing is sort of the, is, is where it all starts. And then the things build up from subclassing. Well, in, in, in Haskell, it's it, everything built up from instantiation. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, the way GHC looks at it, if you apply had to bools, then uh, GHC first instantiates had with, with some unknown unknown type argument and then unifies it with, with bool. Yeah, you got it. Exactly. So, so if we when we see um, when we see head of, of bools, then then it's exactly as you say. We're going to say, well, I you know, when, as soon as GHC sees, sees this function head, it's like, okay, we're going to have to instantiate this to something. Um, we don't know what, so we're just going to say alpha. So we we know that the argument to head has to have list of alpha for some unknown alpha, and very quickly we're going to discover that the the actual list is a list of bools. So we say, ah, alpha, this alpha must be bool. And then we figured out our instantiation. Mm -hmm. And the difference between this case and the case we described before, which required this the proper subsumption rule, was that that previously you had to like apply, but then generalize again, like instantiate, then generalize. Or what was the difference? Why was subsumption critical before? Why uh, is that previous example with F and G with like different for all placement? Like that no longer compiles, but but this continues to compile. So so with the, with the f and g example, just to refresh that, right? We have f of type int arrow for all a dot a, g of type for all a int arrow a, right? So they look the same, but the for all is in a different spot. Well, if we try to say g equals f, when we write f, there's nothing yet to instantiate. The type of f being int arrow for all a dot a, that a is sort of buried under the arrow. If we have a fancy subsumption relationship, we could sort of look under the arrow and grab it and instantiate it. And that's sort of what the fancy relationship did. If we have simple subsumption, then when we see int arrow, doesn't matter what's after the arrow, we're done. We can't, there's nothing to instantiate. So we can't use that same trick. Yeah, I, th I think that's a really great example. I think that, that 
really makes it clear, right? If if you have int arrow for all, then unless you either expand, you have nothing to instantiate. Yeah. Right. And 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 uh, thanks for for bringing back ADA expansion. Right. If we do that, then when we say f x, well now we've passed x to f. Now we sort of exposed this for all a, and then we can instantiate it and and relate f and g. So now let's go back to our list of IDs. Oh yeah, sure. So, okay, so we had head of bools, right? And so we can instantiate head, the, that alpha to be, to be bool. But if we have head of ids, well, now it's, a, and now it's harder. Um, because instead of saying this alpha, should this alpha be for all A, A, R, O, A? Or maybe, or maybe we should take for all A, A, R, O, A and instantiate that to be, I don't know, int arrow int. And then alpha should be int arrow int. There's, there's this tension when we try to, to instantiate a um, one of these unification variables where we try to substitute a unification variable with, um, with a polytype because we could either instantiate the polytype or just use it as it is. In this particular case of head ids, there's no ambiguity though. The only way this is ever going to work out is if we choose alpha to be for all A, A, R, O, A. So the idea behind quick look in predicativity is... Um, is to take a quick look. So the idea is that when we have any kind of function call, we're going to look at the arguments and see, does something about the arguments tell us right away how we should instantiate these variables? Um, and if so, we can instantiate them, even if there are um, polymorphic types involved. There's, there's a lot of details that I'm sort of sweeping under the rug here, but that, that's, the, that's the sort of the high-level view, is that instead of using the full power of Hindley-Milner type inference and constraint generation, although that Hindley-Milner wasn't really about constraint generation. But um, instead of using all of that, we, we use a much simpler algorithm just to look at these arguments and see, is there anything obvious that we can figure out right now? In head of ids, there is something obvious and we can we can go ahead with it. Is it like guessing? And what, what happens if we guess wrong? Is it just we fail to type check something that we wouldn't have type-checked anyway because it requires impredicative types? So, so that's a great question. So the key word in that question is guess. We don't want to guess because of exactly the reason that, that you say. If we make a guess, we could guess wrong. Um, and knowing Hasklers, Hasklers will force GHG to guess wrong sometimes and then post a bug, right? So we don't want that. Um, instead, we're only going to do this when we know there's only one possible answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is possible to build ambiguous cases. And in that case, GHC will refrain from guessing. And, and the beauty of this quick look algorithm is that we can specify exactly when things are ambiguous and when they're not. And so we can predict ahead of time when GHC will be able to infer the impredicative instantiation. One other thing I, I wanted to clarify. So when you first started to talk about a list of IDs, of ID-like functions, uh, which are or, you know, a list of for all A, A, arrow A, that's impossible right now, right? So you're talking about the state the state of things after this feature is implemented, where we have impredicative types? Yeah, so for a long time now, GHC has had a bug. And the bug has been that you've been allowed to say impredicative types in a language pragma. Um, and that it would allow you to do some of this. But I call it a bug because the feature was totally unspecified. 
Um, sometimes it would work, sometimes it wouldn't work. Sometimes a minor release of GHC would break things. Sometimes a minor GHC release of GHC would fix things. There was no specification, it was a mess. Um, we probably should have just removed this bug years ago and not allowed you to write it, but there were too many people who figured out a way of using it usefully. Um, and so we wanted to keep them, them happy and not just pull a rug out from under them. Now we have a real specification. Um, I haven't been involved in this from the beginning, but I know um, uh, collaborators and, and you know uh, uh, Simon Peyton Jones, uh, Stephanie Weirich, their interns and students have been thinking about this um, for maybe 15 years now. And the fact that now we actually have a solution is, is pretty momentous. And so the new solution will live under the old pragma in predicative types? That's right. So we're keeping the same name of pragma. There was a little bit, bit of debate about that, um, but we decided to just keep the old name but now with a real specification and a reliable implementation. Okay, so so basically uh, we'll now have some better version of impredicative types. And what's the, what's the connection with the subsumption? So, so the connection with subsumption is, so let's go back to head ids for a sec. The, the reason that we could, that it wasn't a guess to say that alpha should be for all A, A, R, O, A is because the type that we were applying head to was a list of for all A, A, R, O, A. We can say that that type is guarded in that because I know where these list brackets have to go, I know sort of what goes, what, what instantiations have, have to happen outside of the list brackets, and I know what instantiations have to happen within the list brackets. If I get it wrong, things the types won't line up. So having that list type there really helps me to uh, to control how my instantiation should work. But in another case, let's say instead of something like head, let's say I'm thinking about the compose function. Right? So the compose function dot, this takes two functions as arguments. Well, now it's becoming a lot harder. If I have a fancy subsumption algorithm, or a fancy subsumption relation, I should say, um, and I'm looking at figuring out the types involved in the use of the compose operator, now I have sort of too much flexibility. When I'm instantiating the A, B, and C in the type of the compose operator, do I want to instantiate those to the polytypes or do I want to instantiate the polytypes of functions to something else and then instantiate the A, B, and C to that instantiation? There's, 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 it, it, it's hard to know, in fact, impossible to know in the general case. So the, the, what we get by simplifying subsumption is it means now an arrow is, is just as much of a marker in a type as the list brackets. If I see a for all type under an arrow, I know that that for all has to stay there. It's not going to shift around under my feet. And it can guide my instantiation of something like the compose function um, uh, uh, to use this impredicative instantiation in a way that would be impossible without the simplified subsumption. So in some sense, the simplified subsumption allows quick look and predicativity to be used in more scenarios. We could do impredicative inference without simplified subsumption. It just wouldn't be as useful. And in particular, it wouldn't work with dollar. Many listeners will be familiar with the runst dollar um, idiom. Um, so runst is a function that takes a polymorphic type. Its first argument has a polymorphic type. It's for all s stuff stuff isn't very important. Um, but because people like to use dollar signs to avoid parentheses, we want to be able to say run st dollar something or other. The problem is if we think of dollar as a function, 
that takes in something of type AROB and then something of type A and then returns something of type B, it would mean that we would have to do impredicative instantiation of A. Right? This A type in the type of dollar, when we want to use it for run ST, actually ends up to be this polytype. Um, and so we end up with this instantiation confusion. And so for a long time now, GHC has had a dirty hack that has said that dollar, this one function, can do impredicative inference very specially. Um, and it turns out that if we tried to implement a general impredicative instantiation mechanism, but we didn't simplify subsumption, the general mechanism wouldn't work for dollar. The one thing that we wanted it to work for, it wouldn't. That would be terrible. You'd have to keep this dirty hack. So, so instead of of sort of having now two different and predicative instantiation mechanisms, one that works for dollar and one that doesn't, and then maybe we'd so there's you know there's already been some pressure to have it work for for the compose operator. Instead of doing any of that, we're going to simplify subsumption, and then now we could remove this dirty hack around dollar, and everything works very cleanly. Right, and I and I think the example with the list of uh, polymorphic functions is very nice. You can have, you know, for all a um, list of functions a to a, which we wouldn't treat the same way as a list of polymorphic function, right? So we all we we knew that those were two different types. So what the change is is, as you say now, we treat the arrow the same way as as we treat list. So for for all, we 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 already knew they mattered when whether you put it inside of the list type or outside of the list type. So now it's just the same for for arrows. Um, yes, that's a, that that's a very good point. Um, and and just to to amplify it a little bit, right? If we have something of type for all a list of a r o a, that's a different thing than a list of for all a a r o a, right? In in one. Once we get the list, we know every element of the list maybe is type int arrow int. But we couldn't choose one element of the list and have it be int arrow int, and another element of the list have it be bool arrow bool. Right? If the for all is within the list brackets, then we could we could do that. One element is int arrow int, and the other element behaves as bool arrow bool. So they're they're really they're two different types, and um, it's it's in discerning between these that that it's a, that that we have the challenge. Um, and uh, I agree with you completely. What the simplified subsumption does is it makes arrow just like list. Um, previously, without simplified subsumption, every type was invariant except for arrow, which had special rules around co and contravariance. Now it's simpler. Everything is invariant. Perfect. Okay, Richard, it was a uh, nice chatting with you, and thanks for um, teaching us about subsumption and uh, in predicative types. Uh, yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.